get back at, but just to get started here. Uh, and one of those questions that atheists would ask, or unbelievers in Christianity, uh, we looked at suffering and pain. Why, why is there suffering pain if God is a good God? And we talked about uh, that last week. Another one of those questions would be, well, how do we know the Bible is true? And probably all of you have had that asked, or you will have it asked, and it's good to be able to uh, bring up some things. Uh, granted, every time we have apologetics, we know it's going to be the Lord Himself, the Holy Spirit is going to have to connect with their hearts. But uh, as Peter says, we are to give the reason uh, for the hope that is within us. And so we, we use Scripture and uh, we use the knowledge that God has given us so that we can take them ultimately to uh, who Christ is and uh, who they are and what they need. And they need the good news. They don't know that. But um, anyway, as we've seen that there are aggressive people uh, who write, write aggressive books against Christianity, it's good to have some things that can answer uh, some of these truths and at least be helpful uh, to steer them in the right direction. Uh, one of the things that Jesus did after He resurrected, uh, He ran into a couple of disciples called the Emmaus Disciples, if you remember. And um, they were um, distraught at the fact that the Savior had died. And, of course, as he's walking with them, they don't recognize who he is, but he's the resurrected Savior right there with them. And, of course, that's a beautiful passage everybody is probably familiar with, but it's in Luke 24, verse 26 and 27, where Jesus refers them to the Old Testament, and he calls it the Law and the Prophets. You remember that? He says, Was it not necessary for the Christ, or the Messiah, to suffer these things and to enter into His glory. Wasn't that true? That He was supposed to suffer and then there would be glorification after that. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself in all the Scriptures. Oh, exactly. They got the teacher of all teachers, didn't they? (laughs) Sitting in with Jesus Himself. I always thought, wouldn't it be great to be sitting underneath Paul the Apostle, as many of the early churches did, but this is Jesus. This is the truth. This is the teacher, isn't it? And yeah, wouldn't it be great (laughs) to be with Him, be able to hear what He did and how He brought that forth to them. But you'll notice he, he, he started with Moses or what? The law. Moses represents the law. That would be the first five books. First five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the law. And um, we know that as we looked at Genesis, the first 11 chapters, which we kind of used as a jumping off point into now approaching the society that we live in, which is not really that much different than the society that Noah lived in after the flood. And here we go. Jesus is pointing people to Himself and He's using truth. He uses the Scripture. He could have even started right with Genesis. He could have started with creation, uh, although they believed in the Creator. I would think that it might have been possible that He might have started with the sin of Adam and Eve and the Proto-Evangelium, the first good news of of Jesus the Messiah, right? He could have uh, been there. We don't know. As Bob said there, wouldn't it have been nice to be able to hear all that yet? This could have taken a long time um, because there are many verses. And and it says here that uh, He explained to them the things concerning Himself in all the Scriptures. Uh, representing all the scriptures, there's so many uh, there. We know there's like over 300 of, of the Messiah. But um, one of the questions that people are going to ask was, "Well, I I can't believe that the Bible is true." Well, the Bible val- uh, is validated because it has claims. There are truth claims here, but just because there are claims, that doesn't make it true unless there is something to be seen in there that ha- has happened. How can, we, how can we show that some of these things have already taken place? And rather than going to the law 
tonight, which uh, maybe next week we'll go to the Law or the Ten Commandments and use that. We'll look at the Prophets tonight and then we'll look at some of those questions again who skeptics would be asking. But um, we know over the course of uh, the 1,500 years of the writing of this book, 40 authors, right? 66 books, um, a thousand prophecies. And that, uh, that prophecy is really important because what it appeals to is the thinking, the mind. Uh, that's very important. And, of course, the, the law is going to do that, too. It has a purpose. It's a key of knowledge. But um, it, it, it proves the inspiration of Scripture. Prophecy, as we look at it and see how many have been fulfilled, speaks to the intellect, which is a, is a good thing. Just because we can, we can prove that is not going to make one a Christian, but it sure is a good place to start. Um, prophecy is uh, superior in that matter. Archaeology is another good one too, as we've seen cities that have been discovered. We've seen buildings, places that were named in the Bible that were not known before and as of a hunt within the last hundred years, they have been discovered and it supports what the Bible said and all the places that Luke wrote about in the book of Acts. Some people laughed that off and said those places never existed and they have dug those up. So that's archaeology. Another one is miracles. Miracles, archaeology, prophecy. Let's go into just a few of the prophecies. And these are non-messianic prophecies. Not necessarily dealing with particular the particular passages dealing with Christ dying and resurrecting. Although everything in Scripture is pointing to Christ, right? But these, uh, and we could go into those, and eventually we might. Let's just go into some of these that um, kind of point to historical aspects that even involved secular people, people that would be considered, you know, outside the Bible. Um, Daniel chapter 2. Since we're going to the prophets first, right? Later on, like I said, we'll we'll go to the law, but uh, it's interesting. You can prove to people that the Bible is true just by some things that were stated that came true. Daniel 2. And these are not found anywhere else. This is pre-written history. Do you catch that? Pre-written. It was written before it happened. And this is history now as we look back at it. Uh, Daniel 2. Daniel... Uh, of course, is uh, serving King Nebuchadnezzar, him being a um, Jewish youth, and he uh, was able to interpret the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And by the time we get into verse 38, it says, And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beast of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all, you are the head of gold. So he had this statue. You guys familiar with that dream? The statue. And the head is Nebuchadnezzar or Babylon. And that was the empire that was ruling at that time. And God had given that rule to him and that nation as they were really the world empire. After you there will rise another kingdom inferior to you. Not so big, but powerful. Then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces." So we have a statue, and it's really kind of divided up in, into four, isn't it? And Babylon is at the top, that great empire. Then the Persians, the Medo-Persian empire was going to be second in the history. You won't have hardly anybody even disagree with these. You can sit here and read this, and they can say, yeah, there was the, the Babylonian empire, then the Medes-Persians came along, and they overtook the Babylonians, and then Alexander the Great overtook the Medes and the Persians, and it was the uh, Greek Empire, and then after that, the Roman Empire. 
which will be existing at the time of Christ. So, there is something that was written before it happened. Daniel is written, uh, let's say, 600 B.C., somewhere in that vicinity, and this is later on. It's, let's say, 550, somewhere in that area. I think that's pretty incredible that we get something that is laid out that's going to take all the way up to the time of Christ and further on beyond. I think that is amazing. What other books, what other religious books have a prophecy like that that tell you what the empires are going to be? I think that's rather phenomenal. We have quite a book at least to consider. If you could tell somebody saying, okay, I want to show you, this this was done long before it ever happened. Uh, Let's go to another one. Let's go to Isaiah. Back to the left, right? Left, right, right, left. <laughs> Turn left at the at the, the uh, at Jeremiah. <laughs> Sharp turn. Uh, that is chapter forty-four, twenty-eight. Now this is incredible. Isaiah is telling the the nation of um, Israel he's, as he's speaking to to Jacob. Um, that nation what's going to happen is that there's going to be the Babylonians who will come and and take over they're going to deport you and a lot of you most of you are going to go back to Babylon and that's Judah and Benjamin out of those two tribes and after 70 years uh, we know that that had been prophesied by Jeremiah after 70 years then they would go back to their homeland. Now what's incredible about this is that they haven't been deported yet. They haven't been conquered yet. But God is saying, I'm going to bring you back to the land. And He not only says that, He tells them who from the other empire or nation was and He names the ruler. Now, this is something like 150 years before it happens. Let's pick it up at verse 28 of 44. It is I who says of Cyrus, Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Now when Isaiah is speaking of this, Jerusalem is still there, the temple is there, but he's already said you're going to be conquered. But there's going to be a person that I'm going to raise up and he's going to help and let you go back to your nation. It's going to be a different empire. His name is going to be Cyrus. Now in chapter 45, verse 1, Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed. Now we're not talking about Jesus the Messiah here, but this one who has been anointed to be the king, the ruler, to help this out. Whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. So Cyrus is the one who is going to bring in uh, the, um, the Israelites back to their homeland, back to Jerusalem, and gives them the opportunity to, to build a building. Now go to Ezra, which is the fulfilling of this. Ezra is back to the left. Even before Psalms, even before Job, even before Esther. You're going back towards Genesis, right? In Ezra chapter 1... We're going to go um, 200 years now. 750, let's say 300 years, where this comes about. This comes into play. Ezra 1. Cyrus is a king. And it's of that Medo Persian Empire. Verse 1. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, uh, Ezra 1 1. Ezra 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, king of Persia, that was the next empire after the Babylonians, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, 
Jeremiah had said, yeah, you're going to be deported, but it's going to be 70 years. Anyway, stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. He's not from the chosen nation. He's an enemy. And the Israelites are underneath Persia, but God is going to raise him up. He stirs up the spirit of Cyrus so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, and he he names him. He names him what? He says the right name of God, Yahweh. Jehovah, the Lord, the God of heaven, the one who created, right, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, the Persian Empire, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold and with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Now, isn't that incredible? What does this tell you about our great God? He is in total control where he's letting the very enemy king be like friends with this nation he has and he says, you can go back now and I'm going to help you. And you're going to build a city, you're going to build the temple of the true God, really. I think this is just phenomenal. This is where uh, the good reading for someone who likes to say that God doesn't, which He doesn't, but He doesn't have puppets out there. But yet, this right here, He stirred up the Spirit, Cyrus King Ferguson, so that He can have the visit. You know, God's in charge. So the people that would say it, that would say, no, you know, you get to think for your <laughs> well, that's God speaking to uh, Isaiah. Yeah. Isaiah is, matter of fact, Isaiah wrote Isaiah. Okay. Now, <laughs> I don't. I'm not making light of that because your liberal people don't believe that Isaiah wrote Isaiah. So who was doing the prophesying in Ezra? Now in Ezra, um, no. Of course, you have Ezra and Nehemiah, and those are going to be the leaders to, to rebuild Jerusalem, right? And here you have what would be the, the chronicling of, uh, of, of Cyrus. And this is the same Cyrus. Or of Ezra, I'm sorry. This is the same Cyrus from Isaiah. Yes, mm-hmm. right. Because now, at this time now, we're somewhere around, uh, what, 400 uh, B.C., 400 and something us. Uh, for, I don't know, between, between 500 and 400 B.C., okay? Um, and so this, this is like a good 300 years or so since Isaiah told the prophecy of what was going to happen. Wasn't Cyrus, okay, he said he was an enemy, right? Isn't he going, what the heck? It, I mean, if he was saying all these things, Well, that's that's a nation that of course all the other nations God is going to use. Right? right, and some of, out of different nations are going to be some that are even going to be uh, believers. Now, I'm not saying Cyrus is, but he does give indications that he, God has, as we read here, stirred up his spirit. 
and he knows here's here's what he says the lord the god of heaven has given me all this all the kingdoms and here's what i'm going to do he has appointed me to build this temple do you think he turned around and looked at what he said <laughs> i don't know how he spoke to him you know it was it might have been in the same way that he did the prophets um, no i mean even when he says it I think it's probably making sense to him somehow. Uh, we know that he's what's entering in his heart of, of what he's saying. Who knows what what he's thinking there? But it's like it's it's time that they go back home. Somehow he had a, a change of thinking in his heart. That um, why would you let the ones that you've held captive? Why would you let them go? That's not usually the case, is it? But as Bob was talking about earlier, there's the sovereignty of God. And He's the one, what is the passage, what is the, the verse where it says He He turns the king's uh, hearts like just like uh, the river, you know, the, the channels. He is sovereign over all the nations. And this is this is about God when you when you look at history. You know, it's his story, right? But I don't know how Cyrus is thinking all this, but I'm sure that um, uh, I know uh, Josephus, a historian, he read a prophecy. I mean, um, Daniel, in, in, in Josephus' writing, he said that Daniel read Isaiah's prophecy to Cyrus of that one we just read earlier, and he was, he was moved and he responded to that. And that's now that's outside the scripture. That's Josephus, but he's a historian, and we're maybe like 400 years removed from Josephus. But how that's, far from say how far from the Isaiah prophecy to the him saying this in Ezra would that have been? To 300 and some odd years after Isaiah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, that's going back to the time of let's say the Reformation. Okay, remember the Reformation? <laughs> we weren't there, but we know the history of it. And that's going back pretty good ways, but um, we know a lot of that history. We know a lot of that. It's been written and recorded. So I would tend to think that that's a good good thought that that might have been what happened as, as Daniel read that to him because Daniel survived the Babylonian uh, captivity and then he stayed there and he was uh, underneath Cyrus then. And so he was able to approach that. See, there's how a sovereign God is working, uh, taking his own people and yet informing him of what was to do. I think what God does is you find faith and keep the eyes and you don't know why. And that's phenomenal. Stuff like that. And they don't know particularly why that they find something about you that they like to deal with. His grace is really what they need to be into, you know, and I think this is all a praise to this great God because it just shows that even all those the different empires that came and they went and they still have been doing that all through history and they'll still do that until he comes back he's in total control and he'll do what he wants and what he's what he has said that he was going to do even though it might be hundreds of years later he does specifically even names names like that and no other book, there is no other book like this. There's no prophecy books. There's no, no religions have prophecy. And if they do, it's something that's so far out that you can't even understand it. They don't name names. They don't name cities or places, something that you can get a hold of. And here, this is very specific. So if Cyrus believed in God here in Ezra, then his concept of God versus whatever... Uh, Isaiah's legal concept of God would be something along the lines of the uh, uh, can't think of different sects of religions right now Baptist versus whatever uh, another religion here so they're basically believing in the same God just uh, have different Notions about kind of like a, to me, I would put it in a way, a person has a personal relationship with Christ, and then somebody that's religious, they do church stuff. You don't really know quite what their motive is, but they acknowledge all the things that you believe in. But yeah, 
kind of leaning that way, but maybe uh, being honored that God spoke to you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a hard it's yeah, it's a hard thing and how God uses the honor. Look what he did with Nebuchadnezzar. So, you know, um, what's the end result of that? Can't tell you for sure, but I can definitely say God was... Uh, <laughs> Well, if we were dealing with somebody that was at least wanting to hear something about the Bible and say, well, how can I really know it's true? Well, two pretty good prophecies there that's dealing with history. Just secular history can't argue with that. Well, let's do another one. This is just secular history, but it's written beforehand and shows that God is in control of these things. Debbie. You know, they're going to want to have well, we know one thing that the Jews and all their scripture, and this is historically true, no problem with this at all, was written and finished by 400 BC. Because they had no other writings. All the Old Testament was done. They, their Jewish writings were done. God was done revealing himself for 400 years. So that takes it all the way back to there. That's that's for starters. But then when you go back and you look at like Jewish history, you look at Josephus, historians and such, people maybe that wouldn't be Christians, but were still Jews. I mean, those writings uh, have been preserved. They have we, we know when the datings were on that. There's really nothing to question. The only thing is, in Christianity, when liberalism started coming in, they couldn't deal with these prophecies. So what they started to, tried to do, like the book of Daniel, they tried to move it up to 200 B.C., which is far from truth. The Jews already had it before then. <laughs> And that can even be proven. But if they can take it down to 200, that means all, most of those things had already happened. If they can take away prophecy from God, which is the supernatural. What's that? Who's trying to do that? Liberals. Liberal Christians who do not believe that the Word of God is inspired. Because if it's inspired, then now we are accountable to Him. And they'd really not like to be accountable. And if he has a God of prophecy and he tells truth, that means he's in total control of all of this. If they don't like a God that's in total control, so they start changing names, changing dates, and taking things that are facts, like we have today, and changing history. They're historical revisionist, which is not dealing with truth. But uh, these things are truth. I mean, they're locked in. And so people still have to deal with that. Uh, let's go to another one. Uh, prophecy about Edom. This is found in Jeremiah 49. And the, there's a prophecy starting in verse 1 with Ammon. Uh, those are neighbors to the nation of Israel. Edom is another nation that God is going to judge. We're going to skip a lot of verses here. Go all the way down to verse 16. As uh, Jeremiah 49. As for the terror of you... The arrogance of your heart has deceived you, O oh, you who live in the clefts of the rock. By the way, uh, most of you have probably heard of a place called Petra, and that was a city that was built up into the rocks, and it had, you know, there you have a temple that's built out of the rock. It's right there. It is a temple, and they're, they're hidden up there. Nobody was going to get them because it was safe up there. Um, at least they thought, who occupy the height of the hill. Though you made your nest as high as an eagle's, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. And then verse 17, it identifies who it is. 
Edom will become an object of horror. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss at all its wounds. And then he compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah and how the judgment was going to be put on them. So there was a nation. It was Edom and how God destroyed it. It, But it tells it beforehand. Here's what I'm going to do. Many other nations that he did the same, but that's another one. But here's one of them. What what year was that? Well, Jeremiah, we're talking uh, 750, 700, uh, 600 BC, somewhere in that vicinity. Let's let's say that. So, and and this was probably done. uh, You know, I'm not sure on the dating on that, Kim. Yeah, I thought it might. I have to get back with you on that. Okay. There's another one, and uh, our dating on this one will be uh, easier to tell. Ezekiel. No, no, no. Yeah, Ezekiel 26. Now we've had Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. We've used Daniel, right? Some pretty big prophets. Ezekiel 26. What we're doing is showing that prophecy is really key to showing that it is truth. And if it has an error in these prophecies, then there could be a lot more errors, so therefore it could be false. Yes. Proverbs 21.1 is that verse about the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wants. There you go. That Proverbs 21.1. That, that fits. That fits uh, perfectly with the nations. Uh, Proverbs what? 21.1. 21. That's a good one to keep in mind. King's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And that he does. Yeah, I, well, I've been trying to do the one thing and hear, hear a lot of things at once, but it's a challenge. Okay. Now, one, one more, and, and this, this is just four, okay? This is just four. But you can use any one of these, but if somebody really wants to know, you can say, okay, do you know of any other place? that gives you details uh, dealing with prophecy like this. There's none that I know of, right? Ezekiel 26, this is a judgment on the city of Tyre. And if you look up in verse 3, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. So Tyre is a prospering city, doing very well, and God says, I'm going to judge you. Okay, I'm going to bring a lot of people against you. But He didn't do it all at one time. And that's the key to the prophecy as we look through here and then look back on history. He's just saying, I'm going to bring up a lot of nations. But it's going to be over a couple hundred years. Uh, They will destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. Now look at this. And I will scrape her debris from her and make her a bare rock. Keep that in mind. She will be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God. She will become spoiled for the nations. Well, Ezekiel is written, let's, let's say, 600 B.C. Okay, This is going to be done... And uh, anywhere from a hundred years to a couple hundred years by different people. He starts with Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 7, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring upon Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Okay, so he's naming the name. And Nebuchadnezzar is known throughout history. (laughs) The guy existed. Babylon existed. It was a fearsome empire. King of kings. He's going to come. He's going to come from the north with horses, chariots, cavalry, and a great army. He doesn't have a navy, but he does have an army. Okay. 
He will slay your daughters on the mainland with the sword, and he will make siege walls against you, cast up a ramp against you, and raise up a large shield against you. The blow of his battering rams he will direct against your walls, and with his axes he will break down your towers. Because of the multitude of his horses, the dust raised by them will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of cavalry and wagons and chariots when he enters your gates as men enter a city that is breached. With the hoofs of his horses, he will trample all your streets. He will slay your people with the sword, and your strong pillars will come down to the ground. Also, they will make a spoil of your riches and a prey of your merchandise. Break down your walls, destroy your pleasant houses, throw your stones and your timbers and your debris into the water. Let's stop there for a moment. Historically, this happened. Nebuchadnezzar comes down, defeats this great city of Tyre, and he knocks down the walls, the fortress and everything. There was debris all over the place. And it was just laid out all over the area. What happened is that the, there were many citizens of that city who like, got in their boats and went on out to an island about a half mile out. And Nebuchadnezzar was not prepared, didn't have a navy, didn't go out to the island to go out conquering them the rest. So they stayed on that island. Okay, you have the Babylonians, the Medes and the uh, Persians, which is kind of an empire together there, and then the Greeks, Alexander the Great. Now, what God said is you're gonna, they're going to come and um, I will scrape debris from there and we'll make it a bare rock and they'll spread the nets. Some of you are probably familiar with this story, right? I think it's one of the most incredible ones. Because... It was not only done by Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, there's going to be many nations. The one who finished it off was Alexander the Great. And whenever he got there, there was debris all over the place. The walls were still had been knocked down. It was all over this, this great big rock, a great area for could be great area for fishing. Today it is. And it has been for 700 years. But what was happening here is that he finished the job that God said would happen. He scraped all the stuff, the debris in that city and started building a causeway out to the island. And as, as they kept putting it out into the, the sea there, they were able to build it up high enough where the soldiers could go on across and defeat the ones that were on that island. And so therefore, and to this day... Um, where it says, I will scrape her debris from her and make her a bare rock. She will be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea. Today, people do that. I mean, it's, it's a great fishing spot. They put their nets out there. It is nothing but bare rock. No debris or anything. All the debris was put out into the water as Alexander the Great and his army went on out. And so God comes through with a perfect prophecy again as he used different nations to conquer that city completely and wiped them out. I'm just because I feel like I'm about ready to be blown away, but I'm not there yet. So her question a while ago about uh, okay, somebody saying, well, that was was written um, after the destruction happened. How do you prove that Ezekiel uh, was written? Like, uh, let's say, 600 B.C.? Right. And all of this happened within, uh, let's see, of course, Nebuchadnezzar would have been very soon after this, within 40 years. Yeah, how do you know that, how do we know how, that, how would you prove that this wasn't written 50 years later? Yeah, after the fact. Well, um, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, is it a historical section? Um, well, Here's where you're going to have to take records of people who were the ones that that kept them and organized this and put it all together. Outside the scriptures? Is that just... No, I'm just saying within scripture itself. Uh, or or the, the Jewish people would have had this... We know it has to be before 400, okay? That was before... Uh, I think Alexander the Great comes along in... Uh, uh, what year was that? At least a couple of hundred years after Nebuchadnezzar, I believe. Well, before 400, right? 
When was Alexander the Great? Does anybody have a date on that? Look, it's like this. We have we have movies that were done. We have archives. We have records of saying, okay, the original Batman movie was done, let's say, back in the 1940s or 1950s or 60s. It was on on the TV show. You have written records that tell when those were done. And of course, these are all oracles, or um, these are the prophetical sections that come out of the Hebrew writings. So. They can say, well, that was written after the fact of the matter. They're going to have to prove to you because this was uh, historically put down when these were done. Okay, So that person is going to try to take it as a historical thing after. These were all written before. Uh, Ezekiel was written before the Babylonians even came to conquer them. So that would be general knowledge to people that you... Yeah, what you're going to have, and, and they're not going to have the sources to come up and say, well, you know, you say, well, you prove to me because it these are historical have, have sources. Huh? Do we have those sources? Huh? That would be, yeah, that would be like, ask, like, somebody says, well, I don't believe Abraham Lincoln exists. Prove that to me. You got these pictures and stuff. Are these in the history books that we can get to or are these locked away somewhere? I'm not going to that. You go on the internet and look for historical facts and he would probably give you this he would read the road by what yeah it would be general knowledge if you go to the Jews and their writings and of course they had extra writings um, the Talmud and such those were written let's say uh, before uh, the time of Christ but there was no prophecy and there was nothing written from God from 400 on to the time of Christ so we know it's it's up to that time, but we can we can push it back further whenever we see that the oracles were written and uh, we that we know that Ezekiel himself existed at that time. That's the reason they'll say, well, Ezekiel didn't write Ezekiel. Yeah, it was written, but somebody else wrote it and then claimed to be Ezekiel. Ezekiel lived during that time historically, or Daniel. We have a problem with some of the stuff that the Jews say. So why would we go to some of those? Well, whenever they have, they are the keepers of Scripture. And that's why when you look in the New Testament, Paul... Yeah, uh, I say, yeah. But what we see in the New Testament, we see that they had that advantage of having the Word of God that was delivered to them. And they kept it. And they every time they wrote the Word of God, they would take for every word that they did they would take a like a new pen to, to write it it was dear to them it was it was very near everything that they had here they had these datings correct so it's not 100 200 300 years off i mean it's right at that degree we, we call, know we when that was written yeah because it was the the fulfillment of jesus christ as a whole. Hey, just have a few minutes. Now, we talk, we've talked about suffering. We talked about pain last week. We talked a little bit about the Word of God here. Here's another one. And I, I've gone through a lot of different sources uh, on the Internet of what the ten... The top ten... And there are many. If we put them together, we could probably have 50. Uh, but uh, let's say the top 10 that would refute Christianity. And, of course, uh, the Word of God is right up there, suffering. Um, another one is Christians are hypocrites. Has anybody ever gotten that one? Yeah. Christians are hypocrites. Do you know what to say to that? Yeah. It, it, it means an actor, right? Um but Jesus doesn't ask us to follow others, right? There are hypocrites in the church, hypocrites in the, in the, uh, the grocery store. Do people keep from going to the grocery store because there's hypocrites there? The, the drugstore or any other stores, the ball game, there are hypocrites all over the place. There's hypocrites in the church. But it isn't hypocrites that we follow. Who do we follow? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not the, the hypocrite. 
So the question isn't whether there are hypocrites in the church, but whether Jesus is a hypocrite. And of course, he he uh, is the truth, was the truth. You know, he has always been the truth as he spoke that. Uh, the whole structure of Christianity falls in uh, that line. Uh, if he was a hypocrite, we're, we're ruined. It looks like hypocrites because he's still sin. So, you know, I just respond to that. I'm a sinner saved by grace. And Jesus was not. without sin, right? Exactly. 1 Peter 2.22, He was without sin. 1 John 3.5, um, even Jesus Himself challenged others to prove that He had ever sinned. In John 8, 8.46. So, anyway, uh, the deal about hypocrites, uh, if, if that's what they're... But they're looking at people. And then there's the one who we're to follow, which is Christ. That's just one angle. How about uh, Christianity as a crutch? Have you ever had that one? What did Karl Marx say about religion? Yeah. The opiate for the masses. But the thing is, everybody leans on something. They depend upon drugs, alcohol, tobacco, sex, money, power, other people, material possessions... Whatever it is they need to get where they want to be or what what they're doing. Everyone has to have assistance. So if they want to use the crutch thing, the question is, yeah, uh, I have to lean on Christ for there is nothing else to lean upon. He is my spiritual fulfillment. He is my peace. He is my joy. He is my everything. He's my forgiveness. So if... If they're talking about leaning on him, well, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm trusting in him, right? Um, and, and so does everybody else. They trust in something. How about, well, it's narrow-minded to think that Jesus is the only way to God. Surely there are other people out there that are good people, but Jesus said in John 14:6. What about all those people who've never heard about Jesus? Did we get that one? What about that? Well, we've seen in Romans 1 that the evidence has been given in creation. And then in Romans 2, it says, you know, when it comes down to it, everybody is condemned, and it's all by grace and mercy, but it also shows that people who have a desire to know who God is, um, God will reveal that to them, won't He? And, uh, of course, that, but that's one they'll use. How about hell? Why would a loving God send anybody to hell? Whether they're Christian or not Christian, religious or not religious. If He's loving, right? What's that? He's a holy God. He's a just God. Um, for God to force people to go to heaven against their wishes, <laughs> it wouldn't be heaven, would it? Because they make fun of it. They don't want that. And they have their own heaven in their own mind. <laughs> Just in a dirty way. Um, how about this? Well, I'm already religious. I'm a spiritual person. That's a great step off, isn't it? To saying, okay, well, great. Um, you say you have an interest in spirituality. Uh, then you can go into what the spiritual truths are in the scripture and dialogue from there and of course you can start asking well you know what what uh, as far as eternity is concerned what what uh, where does your religion get you with that right where are you going exactly reminds you of John 3 there yes what's the deal with number 6 because I, I was really feeling uncomfortable when I gave a, a version of the Bible to some girl and I was trying to explain to her the version concept and I was like it sounded funny to me and I was like um, 
why are there so many versions of the Bible, right? Yeah. And that can be confusing to people. And uh, I got it all the time at the store. I mean, people come in and I just want a Bible. Okay. <laughs> and you don't want to want to confuse them up, but you kind of get an idea. You start feeling it out. But the the reason there are many versions is that we are a language that is removed um, two thousand years from the original languages that is written in Greek and and Hebrew. And if um, those were written in an original language, they have to be put in our language that we have today. That, so that we can understand. It's for understanding. And so whenever the first English version came out, it wasn't the King James Version. Uh, believe it or not. It was, uh, you, and I'm not even cutting down the King James Version. I'm just, it, it was, in fact, we, we think it is, but there were versions in English before that. And by the time you get it to the, the King James, and uh, then that was... Um, established uh, for a long time, really hundreds of years. We had it right here in this country until the very early 1900s. Um, but the thing is, some of that, some of our language had changed since the 1600s, and there are different versions of the King James uh, because it's had to be revised and revised. I'm not even talking about New King James because there are words that have changed or don't mean the same thing anymore, and we want it to, to stay current. And within that time, I think you have some publishers that come up and think, hey, we can have our own version. And so they come up with one. Some of them are really, really readable. uh, And that's what they're meant for. But they can be loose as far as their uh, translation is concerned. But it gets the idea across. Um, Some of you probably, for the first time you ever picked up a Bible, might have been a living Bible. You know? And a lot of people I've talked to... But that would be one of the reasons why there are so many and, and you'll continue to see more and more. We, we've had more um, Bibles come out in versions in this century than ever before in history. Uh, the Jimmy Carter Bible. Our language is so different in the U.S. English is That's funny. What what we're dealing with, we're not talking about an inspiration or rewriting it. Um, if they're using all the same verses, granted, sometimes they're a little loose on some, but all these are, we have the Word of God, but we have it in translations. These are all translations. Some are looser than others. Some are very, very accurate, very word for word. But some people have difficulty with reading those, so you know, suggesting that. But as long as they're not changing the Word of God, you have to translate it with as close as you can to be readable. I would say yes. one of the languages that would be really important because if you, like, when you're on Facebook and somebody you translate their German to your English. If you look at it, things aren't said the same way that you say it. And they're not always in the same... You know, like, we go pretty much in order. Well, I just think about other days. <laughs> you know, a lot of people are in Yeah, they're like, they put their verbs first. Right. You know, yeah. that's what I'm saying. Their language is just, you know, you spoke the Bible would be that. We do a Spanish, you do it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 